Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that both are brought to us because of the finished and completed work of Christ. We thank you that he is king. We thank you that we have received mercy when we didn't deserve it because of what he's done for us. Father, I pray that as we go through this next section in Acts, that you would be exalted among us, that Christ would be treasured among us, that we would be renewed and challenged and stirred from the heart to be faithful ambassadors to the King and His kingdom. I pray that hearts that are troubled by things that are going on in their own lives or in the world would find their rest in the finished work of Christ, trusting in His goodness and His mercy and His power and ability to do what He has promised to do in us and in the world. Would you be with us this morning? Help us to think on Him, reflect on Him, glorify Him, and treasure Him above all else. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, last time we, um, we saw how the murder of Stephen by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem led to what Luke calls a scattering of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, and they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We made the point that the death of Stephen marked a change in the mission of the church. What was the mandate? Jesus gave them a mandate in Acts 1. What was the mandate? From what was, the, what was the marching order that we had? He started in Jerusalem, Judea, Judea some area, and then where? The uttermost parts of the earth. All right, so that's the map that he gave them, the battle plan. So here we see that they've been in Jerusalem for the first few chapters in Acts, about five years, a lot of the scholars um, estimate. And now, with the murder of Stephen, the, the language that Luke is using is scattered. And we talked a little bit last week about that language has somewhat of an imagery of scattering seeds. Um, and here in the next section in uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, Luke is focusing on Philip, the evangelist, and the first steps in bringing the gospel beyond the Jews. He begins here with an unlikely audience. So let's look at Acts 8, verses 4 through 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. 
So the Jewish leaders are wanting to crush this new movement. How successful was that? Not so much. What's the response? What happens because of the death of Stephen? The murder of Stephen. Let's call for what it is. What, what, what happens? They're scattering everywhere. What and we see here at the beginning of a theme in the New Testament. The theme that we'll see throughout the writings of the apostles and the, and the, um, the, the New Testament writers, they often refer to the church as the dispersed ones, the diaspora is the, the, the big $10 word that, that the, the smart guys use. The dispersion. And they're pulling this from what had happened with old Israel. Remember when uh, Israel in covenant with God sins against God, rebels against the covenant of God, and, and worships other gods or trusts in other foreign powers rather than trusting in God, what happens to them? They get conquered, and part of the conquering, something happens. They get carried away. They get carried away. We think of Assyria with the northern kingdoms. They're, they're pulled out and they're repopulated with others. And then uh, Babylon with Judah, they pull them out and put... They take all the, the cream of the crop, the princes and whatever, and, and, and carry them off to other, other lands to resettle them. But in the New Testament, you see the apostles referring to the Christian church as the dispersion, the diaspora. First uh, Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, <laughs> an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his letter, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. What an odd thing to say. What? And this has been the state of the church since the very beginning. After this deal with Stephen... This is the state, this is the recognized state of the church. A people dispersed without a home. What, what are these dispersed people doing? Are they moaning? Oh, that we could go back to Jerusalem? Oh, I, I wish it were like this back, like it was in the old days, the first five years. I wish it were like this in the, back in the old days. What are they doing? They're spreading the gospel. And what does it say? Preaching the word. They're diligent to preach the word. And they preach in hope, not in despair. They're not fearful. Um, in old Israel, we see this dispersion as a judgment on them for their disobedience and rejection of the covenant, right? In the new Israel... You see this dispersion not as a judgment, but as a mercy to the nations. It gets the gospel out there to more than just Jews, more than just Israel. The new dispersion is a mercy to the nations as the good news of what God has accomplished in Christ and it's proclaimed and God's people are gathered by that proclamation. Uh, Calvin says this, 
they are as ready to preach Christ even in the midst of their calamity as if they had never suffered any trouble. So Luke uses this word scattered again, and the, the, the scattering seed, what happens to a seed before it can grow? What has to happen? It dies. If you ever try to grow one of those avocado trees, you ever tried this with the toothpicks and the thing? Those seeds live forever. I have yet to have a successful avocado tree in Texas because you just can't grow it in your kitchen like it. All the Pinterest stuff says you could do this and it never works. For a seed to grow, it has to die. And death here, in, in mind of, uh, you know, for, if this is the language that Luke is using, and I think it is, the dying here is dying to what we, we treasure temporarily in, in the hope of something more valuable, more eternal coming out of that. And you see it, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see that, that phrase repeated early in the, in the second century. Um, and not just that way, but the persecution that they endure. Their stuff gets taken. You know, people march and break out windows and do kinds of things that, that, that are against more than just political figures. They, they do this against the church. But that's the price that's paid because we're imaging Christ. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will not bear fruit. So we see that this seed that's scattered here in, uh, in uh, verse um, in, in, in chapter 8, verse uh, 1, that the seed is scattered throughout regions of Judea and Samaria. By chapter 11, we're going to see that they're in um, Phoenicia, which during the Roman time, that was about where Lebanon is. So it's north of Israel. Uh, and and uh, Cyprus, which is an island that was west of Judea. And then in uh, Antioch, which is on the kind of the Turkey-Syrian border there. So they're going north and west. Is kind of where this first leg of the spreading of the church is being recorded by, by Luke. But for now, he focuses on Philip in Samaria. And that's not to say that other things like this weren't going on. He's just focusing on Philip in Samaria, which is always a cool thing to think about. What's Luke not telling us about what's going on in Antioch, in Phoenicia, in you know, Cyprus? All of that. Um, what, what, who is Philip? Who is he? The second deacon? He was, he was the guy back in, in, uh, in, in was it chapter 6, 5, 6? They, they had the issue with the, the widows, the Hellenistic widows. And he was one of the guys that was chosen to help with that. And then we never hear about that again. Stephen's preaching the gospel. And now Philip is also preaching the gospel. Um, Later, he's going to be called Philip the Evangelist. So he's in Samaria. It says a city of Samaria. Who are the Samaritans? What are, what are these people? Half-breeds. Half, half Half-breeds. According to whom? The Jews. So the Jews consider them half-breeds. They neither consider them Gentile nor Jewish. Are they not accepted by the Gentiles as well? Uh, maybe. Maybe. They certainly weren't accepted by the Jews. 
we talked about how the dispersion happened with Israel. This was some of the effects of the dispersion in the northern kingdom. You remember that whenever um, Solomon died, his son Rehoboam uh, took, took counsel with some of the younger men. Uh, and they were, the people came to him and said, <clears throat> the tax burden's too great. We want to make Israel great again. The tax burden returned power to the local people. Uh, and so he, he took counsel, thought it through. They had a legislative uh, committee meeting, you know, a brainstorm thing at, at, at Camp David <laughs> uh, for uh, about two, two days. And then, and then they came back and they said, uh, based on his counselors, he said, um, my little finger will be thicker than my father's thigh. My father beat you with whips. I will beat you with scorpions. I will not lower your taxes, but I will, in, in fact, raise them. So he took the, he, he swung left with the tax plan. And what happens? Tyranny. Well, that was tyranny. What does the northern kingdom do? They, what, what, what would you do? I mean, of course, they're going to rebel. And they break off. So ten tribes north. No longer part of Judah. We'll have no part of Judah. And the king that is set up in Israel sets up a new capital uh, and a new worship system. They, he doesn't want people going down to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. He sets up a new thing. So they build, what are, they, what are the things? We will worship the gods that brought us out of Egypt. They set up golden calves. Because that makes sense. That went well. And that is the plague of the northern kingdoms. For the rest, and this happened like in 930 BC, so a thousand years before about here. Um, Northern kingdoms have been pagan. They've been uh, pagan, idol-worshipping uh, Israelites, right? So God brings judgment. You have Jezebel come out of that whole thing later on. Ahad uh, and, and uh, all of that. So you, you have the, the Syria comes in, takes them, takes, you know. When they come back, though, they're able to repopulate this place. And history tells us that they actually come back and they want to be, they consider themselves still the people of God. They intermarry with Canaanites that are still there, so they're breaking the law there. But they tear down the idols, but they build a rival temple in the northern kingdom at Mount Gerizim, is the name of the mountain, and this is a way for them to keep people up north rather than, you know, again, they come up with, they, they modify the Pentateuch a little bit. That becomes their holy scriptures so that they can justify having a temple in, you know, up north. They, they also have this longing for a Messiah. And they're working off of what Moses said in Deuteronomy, there will come after me a prophet like me. So Moses-like prophet coming they called him the restorer because the longing in the heart for the northern kingdom was we want to be reunited. Well, when, uh, when Judah uh, rebelled against the Greek uh, empire, Seleucid Empire, that one of those generals that took over, the, they had the Maccabean Revolt, about 100 years of, you know, a taste of freedom. There was a monarchy set up in Israel or in Judah. They conquered, one of the kings of that monarchy conquered Samaria. 
and subjected the Sumerians to slavery under Jewish domination. That's a way to win back your brothers. That happened for about 50 years or whatever, until they were liberated by the Romans. The Romans come in and make them no longer subject to the Jews. And so you have this continued rift of animosity, racism, hatred uh, between Jews in the south and, and the Sumerians in the north. What is Philip doing? What is he doing? He's going north. Jesus went north, didn't he? Didn't he visit the Samaritans? Remember the woman at the well? What was her big beef with Jesus, the Jew? Well, is it on this mountain or the other? You Jews say that we got to worship down south. We believe we got to worship up north. And what did what did Jesus? What was his response to her? True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. There's coming a day, right, when it won't matter where you worship because the Father is seeking true worshipers to worship Him. And do you remember as John and James are walking with Jesus through Samaria, what their response to the Samaritans was? What, what, what did they tell Jesus? He got rejected in one town. They were a little miffed at that. What was, his, what was their response? Being good nationalistic populists that they are, what does he say? Is that where they asked them to bring fire? And Can we, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these Samaritans? Right? That's the heart of Jews against Samaritans. The, the, the story of the Good Samaritan Jesus did was shocking because who would ever assign this kind of goodness to a Samaritan? These half-breed idol worshipers. That's the heart in which was going on. That's a cultural soup that was boiling between these two nations at the time. Um, all right. So it says Philip went to the, quote, city of Samaria. Do any of you have a textual note there? A city? The, later, the majority of the later manuscripts have this city, the city of Samaria, and, uh, which is problematic um, because the city of Samaria no longer existed. Remember the king, I told you, the Jewish king that came in? He, well, they destroyed the city of Samaria. Herod the Great rebuilt that city uh, and called it Sebaste, which is Greek for Augustus, uh, which was built in honor of Caesar. It's a very Greek city. It's populated with a bunch of Greek pagans. So the idea of this, you know, a lot of the smart guys think if Luke had meant to say Sebaste, he would have said it because everybody knew what the town was. So the idea is that it probably was not the capital that was Greek-dominated. It was probably a city that was near uh, this Mount Gerizim or whatever. And so it was most likely something dominated by Samaritans. But we don't know. Um, it seems likely, according to a lot of the smart folks, that Philip would have gone to a predominantly 
would not have gone to a predominantly pagan population yet. So Philip is pictured here by Luke as witnessing two Sumerians uh, proper. Um, and their holy, their holy city at that time was the ancient city of Shechem. Now what is Shechem? Do you remember the history of this town? Yes. That, that one and the that, got mad and uh-huh. found a way to weaken all the men. Yeah, they weaken the men. They, they, them. Yeah. So there's that. That's how uh, Levi and... PG yeah. Levi and uh, Simeon um, go Rambo on some Canaan, local Canaanites over their, their sister being taken. Um, that's one element. Where was Joseph buried? <coughs> At Shechem. Hey, there it is. This is interesting to me, these connections. I mean, really all the towns that are mentioned have some kind of background story. But it's interesting, he goes, we think, possibly, to this town of Shechem, uh, where, where Joseph's uh, bones rest. And uh, it seems that that's the most likely place, given how, how Luke frames the encounter. Well, wherever it was, Philip is, is taking a radical next step in the fulfillment of Christ's mandate. So far, the mission had only been to Jews, um, but here he's going to the Samaritans. Wh where, what is Philip proclaiming to them? What does it say? He proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, they had an understanding of Messiah, this Moses-like prophet that was coming to the Restorer. So Philip here is giving them, seems to be, obviously, a fuller understanding of the true Messiah. It's kind of like what Jesus did in John 4. What else is Philip doing? What else is he doing? Give his testimony of what he, or what they heard and saw. Okay, what does it say he's doing? He did signs. What does it say, what kind of signs? Healing. How? What specifically? Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And unclean spirits. So notice the two themes that Luke is hitting on of what Philip did. This Messiah is destroying the powers of the current regime, of the former regime, right? Satan's kingdom is crashing. And the power of Christ is destroying it. The demons are leaving. There's, this is the sign of demonic control or whatever over Samaria. Over Think, too, if, if they had this history of pagan worship, this kind of stuff was pretty common. And here we have a man coming in, sharing the gospel, preaching Christ, the true Messiah, and, and the response of the kingdom of darkness is to scream and leave because of the power of the gospel. What else is he doing? It's already mentioned. He's healing what? Broken bodies, which is what? what, what why do we have sickness in the world? Sin, sin. sin, the fall, the curse of the fall. So the Messiah is doing two things. He's destroying the works of the evil one, and he's restoring, reversing the effects of, of Genesis 3, of the fall. And the reason I bring this out is because the signs always pointed to the life and the power of Christ. They're not signs for signs' sake. They're there to demonstrate the power of Christ and the, and the um, 
in confirming the truth of the gospel. So what we, what we don't see here, these kinds of signs, we don't see wrenched backs. We don't see uneven legs. We don't see headaches. We don't see people being knocked down on stage. We see objective, verifiable results of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the preached word. These signs point to the march of a king throwing down the powers of darkness and reversing the curse of the fall. It was objective and verifiable. Ultimately, we see that the gospel is responded to, not the miracles. The miracles can assist faith of people in, in trusting Christ and His power, but they can never be a substitute for that faith. When we see the thirst for miracles become a priority, Scripture shows that this can often be a hindrance to faith, and we'll see that in the passage next time uh, in Acts, dealing with Simon the magician. What is the result of Philip's witness? It was much joy. Much joy. They respond in much joy. So why? Why would this cause them joy? Just, what does that mean? It's given them a lot of hope. A lot of hope. In what way? Christ did defeat the devil. And positive change is coming. Positive change is here. This is the restorer. This is the restorer. Positive change is coming. Gave some hope. The restorer of what? What is... Of everything. Of everything. And I mean, you've got the... Peter. Peter. Whoever went up there. Sorry. Philip. Yeah. Philip. Yeah. He, he is a Jew. He's going to them. Right. One of the Jews is coming to, to us, the Samaritans, and saying, look, we, we know, we know, this is, this is the person that's going to fix all of this. So the relationship between Jew and Samaritan is resolved in the restorer, mm -hmm. in Christ. That causes joy. What else would cause joy? Spirit of God in you, you rejoice when He wins, when He succeeds, when He's doing what He does. Okay, so a natural outcropping of the Holy Spirit being there. But there's got to be a basis for why the joy. So the, restora the restoration, I mean, in, in the gospel you see the great equalizer, don't you? The, there's no lesser people in the gospel in the gospel. There's no half-breed people in the gospel. Uh, there's no physical rejects in the gospel. We, we don't call people out because they're, they've got a bad leg, or we don't call people out because they're blind, or, or whatever. There's no place for any human prejudices. There's acceptance for those who put their trust in Christ. Jesus makes the difference, not the location of worship. And this results in great joy. Wasn't that the promise of the angels when Christ was born? The night with the shepherds when they announced His birth? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for the Jews. For all people, right? Why the joy? The circumstances hadn't changed. They were still under Roman rule. The great restorer hadn't come and given them 
back the whole 12 tribes and set up a Davidic dynasty, if we're going to use a British term. Why the joy? They were still hated by Jews. What had been restored? And, and what is joy anyway? What does that mean? Was Philip joyful? How could he be joyful when he had experienced the slaughter of his friend Stephen a little bit before? How could he be joyful? He had hope. He knew he, knew he was with Christ. He had hope. There was a bigger narrative. A bigger him. narrative than the immediate pain of Stephen's death. Okay? First Peter, when it talks about the trials, so the tested genuineness of their faith. So they were ransacked and dispersed and went through trials, and they went away rejoicing, not because their circumstances changed, but because they knew that their faith was genuine. Mm -hmm. And if they're in one accord here, and we're dispersing one of the trials too, they're probably rejoicing because they realize their faith is counted as genuine, they're worthy of the cause of Christ. So they, the, the, any, any difficulty that Philip may have experienced having to leave Jerusalem, the difficulties that still remain with the Samaritans that, he's, that are coming to faith in Christ, because they still love Jesus in the midst of those, it's confirming that their faith is right, is, is genuine. Okay? And uh, you have people being healed mm-hmm. and being cast out and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The same Jesus who's healing them can bring Stephen back. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So the promise of the resurrection. Right. Good. And then we saw that in the way that they termed it, he fell asleep. Yeah. Right. Good. Joy is such a weird term. How do you nail that down? What does that look like? That's a weird term. There was much joy in that city. What does that mean? Um, It certainly can't be measured by feeling. I mean, there's been a saccharine view that's placed on that term, right? Um, uh, You you have don't worry, be happy. Um, Satisfaction or just hope, satisfaction, just knowing. I have to cut you off. I'm yeah, sorry. Um, I don't know. Just hope, satisfaction. I guess would be a good way to look at it. Okay. I view it as a perspective, um, like an internal perspective, a a bigger kind of like what Clint said, a bigger picture, a bigger um, perspective that looks beyond the feelings, beyond the here and now, but that the the sovereign God has a plan, and this plan is coming to fruition right now. So it's a, it's a, it's a settled hope in the sovereignty of God that His plan is coming to fruition. Is that, is that fair? I see it the same way I see it in non-temporal circumstances. It's your more full reality circumstance. Yeah. It's just a weird term, joy. Because we, we tend to think of it as the, the Botox smile, you know. We, we, this thing all the time. 
But that's not what the term means in the Bible. Uh, Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's weird. How do you do that? Do you, do you, are you Harvey Two-Face, a little schizophrenic there? We're going to flip a coin and see if we're going to smile or we're going to... Or we're going to... What does that mean? <clears throat> Biblical joy is not happiness. It's not sugary snowflakes that melt in the heat of real life. Think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Some translations say, happy are the poor. And I, and I just get all weirded out by that. Uh, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. Does Christianity invite us into schizophrenia? Is that what's going on? No. Absolutely not. Happiness is trivial in our culture. It's a trivial thing. The Greek word used in the Gospels for blessed means a profound peace, comfort, stability, and, wait for it, great joy. Joyful are those who mourn. How can that be if we put on it, uh, clap along if happiness is the truth of? How can that be? One of the most trivialized passages in Scripture tells us how this is possible. It's on all the little Bible bookstore cards that you hand out to people who are suffering. It's supposed to solve the problem right there. Just reading it. Romans 8, 28. It's all for the good. Smile, be happy. It's all for the good. That's not what Paul's talking about. The verse says, And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. First of all, let's get this out of the way. How many things? All. So all means all there. Right? We're good with that? Does that mean just good things or also the things that we see are bad things? And notice this. Christians endure all things. Let's start from there. Christianity does not get you out of bad stuff. What a lie. That somehow if you come to Christ, you won't have sickness. You won't have a, a bad job. You, you'll, you'll, you'll get the American dream. The hot wife, the hot car, the hot house, and the 2.5 kids that are completely obedient, blonde children with blue eyes. There's nothing wrong with those. No, the, the half. The, they are. They are the model of the perfect American. I'll grant you that. Sorry. Once you're Gryffindor. Ten points for Gryffindor. Nice. Nice. 
Okay, let me recoup. <laughs> Christians endure all things. We experience, we're not separated out from the rest of the world from our experiences in life. What hogwash? What is it? If you plan to experience your best life now, you're headed for hell. All things, God, another, another translation of this is, God works all things. So what does that tell us? He can. He does. He works all things together. And notice it's together. It's not one isolated thing. Man, she told me she wouldn't go out with me. I feel rejection. But God will work this around for good so that I'll eventually get to go out with her when I want to. Right? Or, man, they didn't give me that raise. But God will work it for good and I'll get a better job. I want to smack people when I hear stuff like that. Where does it say that because we come to Christ, we get our wish list? He's not a vending machine. All things work together for the good, for those who are called according to His purpose. The Christian doesn't get a pass on the hard things in life. What we get is joy, comfort, stability in the midst of them. Why? Because those in Christ know this, that God is sovereign, that He is working all things for our good. What is good? What is good? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll riff off of C.S. Lewis here. Uh, don't come to Christianity if you want to be happy. I had a conversation this week with a guy who said, I hate going to church because I always feel like it's a beatdown. I said, well, don't come, to, don't come to Jesus because you want to feel good about yourself. Don't come to Christianity because you want a better job or, or you want, you're trying to find you know, that girl or that guy. Or, or don't come to Christianity because you don't ever want to be sick again or lose a parent or have hardship in life. Don't do it. Come to it because it's true. Come to Jesus because it's true. He, what He promises is true. What does He promise? Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew. Now there's an interesting word. We'll discuss that maybe some other time. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. There's another interesting word. We might discuss that another time too. Uh, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. What is the highest good according to God? To look like Jesus. To bear the image and reflection of His glorious Son. Father, I want them to share the glory that You gave to me. I want them to share that. That's God's good. The good that is promised is that we will be conformed. The word there is metamorphosized. Is that a word? Metamorphed? I don't know. Can you, can you verb that one? Metamorphed? I don't know. Into the likeness of Jesus. Loved by God as He loves His own Son. And this is being more human than we could ever imagine. I don't even know how to describe it. Neither does Paul. 
Read 1 Corinthians 15. He can't describe it. But it's good. All right. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ladies, does it bother you that it says firstborn among many brothers? Does it bother you that some translations say firstborn among many sons? Because, you know, the Bible's patriarchal and misogynistic and all this kind of stuff. You know what's going on there? They're all out marking right now. They're all, oh, so, so I'm wasting this talk on, because they're out there breaking Starbucks windows. Okay, so um, the idea here is that Paul is riffing off the culture of the time. Sons got the greater portion of the inheritance. Daughters are married off, and he had to pay to get them married off in the culture. By him saying, sons... It's not a slap to the gender. It's a recognition of the worth of the daughters, too. They're treated as my culture treats sons. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not saying that women are less. It's saying they're valued as much as. Does that make sense? And we are valued collectively as in Christ, He loves us as He loves His Son. That's what John says. The equality of worth is conveyed in a patriarchal society. In marriage, women doing what their created role is, doing what their husbands cannot in a way that complements what the husband has been created to do, so displaying the unity and diversity. The woman loses no value or dignity. She's also being conformed to the image of Christ. In singleness, the woman is seeking to lead a peaceable, quiet, and holy life, just like the men, and in no way is a lesser-valued creature for it. She's treated as a son, as a brother. The use here conveys value, not misogyny. And then what does it say in verse 30? And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What do you notice about that last word in this chain of events? What tense are these words in? They're all past. And who's doing it? He. Who's the He? Does it say, because of your awesomely awesome faith, you get to be glorified if you just hang on? No. He considers it already done. It's already done because of the finished and complete work in Christ. It is God who glorifies, not our efforts, though we work because He's working in us. It's a done deal as far as He's concerned, even though you're still wrestling with that temptation you can't seem to conquer. Fight it. Don't stop. It's already beaten. In the mind of God, it's as if you've already been glorified because He's doing it. What a basis for joy. The definition of joy, blessed, is stability, comfort, hope. What a basis for... Who will separate us from the love of Christ? There's nothing that comes from the hand of God that is not necessary for our good. And here's the other side of that. 
There's nothing withheld from the hand of God that is necessary for our good. He gives us what we need. He keeps back from us what we don't. And how many times do we bang our heads against the wall? God, give me this. God, give me this. God, give me this. If it's withheld, it's not necessary for our good. We either trust Him or we don't. Every bit of chaos is used by the sovereign God to make us into the image of His Son. That's stability. It's all for our good. The bad things are for our good. The good things are extraordinary gifts. And, all, and the end of all things is beyond what we could ask or think. So here's the question. Is there much joy in us? In my circumstance, in my loneliness, in my heartache, in my wishing that I were somebody different with more hair and, and a better physique, in all of that inadequacy and in all of that nonsense, do I recognize, am I comforted by, am I satisfied in the work of God in Christ in me by His Spirit? Is that stable enough that I can trust it? Or do we, to paraphrase, to paraphrase Lewis again, do we spend too much time longing for minutes to make mud pies rather than seek the holiday at the beach? And we see this with Philip. And this is a thing that just resonated with me. And that's why I only did four verses. This resonated with me this week. Philip is part of a scattering. And this is God's scattering. And he's scattering joy. They're seeds of joy embodied in the people of God who have been redeemed and restored in Christ. They're seeds of joy. He is merely God's scattered joy to the Sumerians. He's the one recorded here, but there were Christians scattered throughout and moving further up and further in. The question is, are we scattered joy? Or are we moaners and complainers? Not that we don't have things to grieve over. I don't want to minimize that. But, but do we exude and reflect a confidence in the sovereign work of God, the stability that we have, that those whom He called, He will glorify? Are we scattered seeds of joy? All right. Any, any questions, comments? topic that we had at the board meeting today was God's goodness. And like you said, we're not, we don't get a free pass. We don't get, it's not part of the deal. You know, from, as someone looking in from outside would say, is that, you know, right. what am I going to get from this? Right. Um, I like sharing, when I get the chance, I like sharing that the men that go out there don't have perfect lives. Mm. We don't have just tons of free time. We mm. don't have perfect houses and jobs and things, just like you said, mm -hmm. because I don't want those boys to get a grand picture of what they're going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I want them to to see it for, for what it is. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I like that you said that. I like that 
that's very accurate because we do get caught up in that in thinking our circumstance will change or expecting it to right to get that matters more than it it's easy to do well people on the outside see that because we do have hope mm -hmm. and so people who look on the outside think oh they have this perfect life you know, because generally when we're sharing the gospel or we're living life with people, we're not showing them all our ugly right off the bat. Right. Know, unless we have a really intimate relationship with them. Right. So they do see this perfect reflection, like, it's, oh, the perfect American life. It's easy to assume. Yeah. 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 And it's like, it's not even like we're necessarily trying, but it's good to be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't have it all together. Yeah. You know, I still struggle with sin and I still have these things. Because it is easy to look, to appear that To project way. that. I mean, you can, you, can, purpose, you can structure your Facebook profile just so, and it looks perfect and great. Some good Photoshop software. I can look like Superman, and, but no. Um, anything else? I one thought when we were talking about yeah. you went to Shechem. Mm-hmm and how that was where Joseph's bones were buried. Right. And you think about the story of Joseph and how he was displaced. Mm -hmm. And as a result of him being displaced for seven years of famine, all the people in the area and surrounding areas mm -hmm. were preserved. Mm -hmm. And how that must have been, I mean, they knew that history. They knew God's faithfulness then. And so even as they're being displaced and they're being persecuted, knowing that as much as seven years of famine was an awful thing, mm -hmm. Um, this is eternity that mm -hmm. we're talking about now. We're talking about eternal separation from God and mm -hmm. eternal emptiness. And, um, and so to be able to be displaced knowing, okay, I'm being displaced, but because of this, God's using that to preserve not just our physical bodies, but our souls as well. Right. Know? I mean, that's kind of a powerful thing too. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't dwell on that much, but you're, you're right. I mean, Joseph was scattered for joy mm -hmm. to preserve a people from hunger. Yeah. And how much more sharing the gospel, proclaiming the kingship of Christ to preserve people from spiritual hunger. And he recognized what you meant for evil, God and God. Yeah. What, I mean, yeah. that whole, and all even, work together. Even yeah. this whole scattering that the people who scattered these people meant for evil, mm -hmm. God meant it for good because that's how the Samaritans yeah. heard the truth. That's right. You know, James good. reflects it in the first chapter when he talks about count it all joy when mm -hmm. face because these will work in you to be perfect and complete. Mm -hmm. so having that hope spur us on. Yeah. And the hope is based on the completed work while we're working to complete our work, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is completed. It's all, it's a mind game. God knows. And Your definition of joy is, is the, the biblical definition of joy. It assumes a setting aside of pride, mm -hmm. room for pride in it. If you look at the worldly definition of joy that we think of being happy, mm -hmm. it's always an inward focus. Right. So, because this happened, or to me, to me, I did this, this is great. It's, but that's why it's at odds here. It seems weird in scripture because the scriptural definition has no place for inward focus. Right. No place for pride. If you look at all the definitions, things that you use like contentedness, uh, I can't remember all the other ones you said. Those all assume a denial of self. Mm -hmm. In order to have biblical joy, it's a denial of self. Mm -hmm. To have your best life later, you have to deny yourself. Right. So right. The, the, the difference is the reason we can have hope is because we can set aside what we have here. We can deny ourselves here. Yeah. In hope 
of a biblical definition of joy. It, yeah. it all requires that we remove the pride and say that ourselves. Right, so happiness is the opposite of that. Correct. In our definition of happiness. Right. It, gets, it gets the secular definition of joy. It, it yeah. It's still, yeah. It's still... An, it's, it's based on my good luck, it's focused. It's, it, my skill, right. My planning ahead, you moron! Why didn't you do that? Uh, you know, it's a pri You're right. That's a. It's a. It's an absolute opposite of the biblical def. It's a. It's anti Christ. Right. It's the same definite, <laughs> It's the same word, and that's why I think it gets yeah. misconstrued and it's easy to do that. Right. No, it's good. It's a good, good bumper sticker. Your best life later. Your best life later. <laughs> I'd buy it. Struck me, I guess, when Eric was talking. Is um, in the instances that. I'm thinking of uh, where, you know, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Mm -hmm. Here they're under persecution and scattering, and there was much joy. And um, with, you know, with Paul, he says, it, with uh, sorrow, but with joy, mm -hmm. it's, it's this idea, and, and I think of... I think of Keith Frazier. I think of mm -hmm. some people we've seen suffer mm -hmm. horribly, mm -hmm. and it's like this diamond on a black, you know, black background that shines all the brighter mm -hmm. in in the in the hardship. It's like joy is most evident in the hard times, mm -hmm. whereas happiness is this surface thing that's apparent in the easy times. Right. But it's that um, it melts. Yeah, but the like he. Uh, Clint was saying the trials of various kinds. We talked about this in our girl study that not all the trials that we face are big trials. Mm -hmm. We face um, mundane things. We face frustration. We face irritation. Mm -hmm. We face trials every day of little things. And if we're not faithful in those trials, how do we expect to be faithful when we're diagnosed with something yeah. that's hard or yeah. we lose someone we love? Right. So. Yeah, it's a, it's it begins a with the little to be things. Faithful in the little things. Right, yeah. right. Good. What do you say? <laughs> you gonna call me out right here in front of everybody? I, I just I don't know how to feel about that. Okay. Anything else? All right. Let's uh, let's pray. Hey, ten fifteen. That's not bad. God, we do thank you. We thank you. I pray, Father, that our thankfulness would increase because of what you've done for us in Jesus. The root of joy is understanding your work in us. And our thankfulness comes from prizing what you prize and how successful you are in achieving what you prize, the image of your Son in us. Would you help us to orient our heads that way? Would you wash our heads with your word this week as we diligently and faithfully read it and seek to understand it, pray over it, we seek to spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ discussing the beauty of the gospel and how it applies in our lives and how hard that is sometimes with the things that we're going through. Would you be gracious to us? You've commanded us to be thankful. Would you give what you command? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.